Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight in the Mezcal Collective at Las Perlas, we had Jen Oakley from Del McGay in the house. Del McGay, the folks who first brought Single Village Mezcal to the world. So check it out. Enjoy this podcast responsibly. That means don't spill your Mezcal. It's extremely precious. It is the lifeblood and the historical culture of a whole people. Zip it. Don't shoot it. It's down the gay. It's mezcal. It's precious. It's magical. It's wonderful. Enjoy it with your friends. All right, all right. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna let you guys off the hook. That was a pretty shitty slow clap. What the hell, guys? It's Wednesday. We should have figured it out by Tuesday. I would think it's not that complicated. It's been a full work week already. Right, and there's a lot of you here tonight. Why is that, Luis? Why are there so many people here? Del McGay, Del McGay in the house. Please give it up for Miss Jen Oakley from Del McGay. Thank you. And people are excited because you guys are kind of the forebears of the Mezcal movement, right? I mean, you bought Mezcal.com before there even <laughs> were computers, right? There's like people just putting <laughs> mm-hmm. their fingers on rocks. Basically, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Ron Cooper, our founder, he's been called the godfather of the artisanal mezcal movement here in the United States. Uh, Chichi Capa, which is our flagship, which we're going to taste tonight, came out in 1995. Well, and like nobody, you know, nobody was really paying attention to mezcal back then. So Ron and Del McGay and this company, I think, have really you know, paved the way and sort of been the leaders in this movement. In terms of bringing it to America. But exactly. of course, what Ron actually discovered was something that was, you know, centuries old, a tradition that had been carried on in small little towns, individual palinques providing the medicina for their own villages all over Oaxaca, all over different parts of Mexico. It's amazing what he's brought to America in terms of not only mezcal, but history. Exactly, yeah. That's the important thing to remember about Del McGay is we're, Ron Cooper, we're not making mezcal. We are basically buying mezcal from families in remote villages in and around Oaxaca. That's why we have about 20 different expressions. Um, our full title is Del Miguel Single Village Mezcal. And like Pedro was just saying, it's lots of different smaller villages. Um, so what that means to us, we call it single village methodology. Uh, what Del Miguel tries to do is highlight and preserve the culture and tradition that's inherent in each of these villages. Ron, I guess, coined the term single village mezcal mm-hmm. like just to better understand exactly what people were buying exactly uh, this is ages before where we are now where you've got incredible mezcals coming to market from all over many different brands but you guys were the, the first ones to kind of really focus in and, and find these single villages and bring what the best they had to make to to america for the first time right yeah we we kind of when I, when I talk about mezcal, when I talk about Del Maguey, it's easier to compare it, mezcal to wine than to any other spirit. So when we talk about wine, we talk about terroir and the hand of the maker. What is the altitude? What's the soil like? What's, what ambient yeast are around? All those things that we talk about and like what makes wine, like the different wine regions, like whatever makes that important, it's the same with mezcal. And that's what's really cool about some of the stuff we're going to taste tonight. We're going to taste a few of the same varietal of agave. We're going to taste a few different espadines that are from different villages. So you're going to actually be able to taste that village and you're going to be able to taste what that particular maker does. Because each village uses different stills. The size of their tinas 
might be different. So the ratio of water to the, the most, uh, the different um, local yeast strains, because traditionally they wouldn't have been buying a yeast from the corner store because that would not have been a thing. You were only u- utilizing the wild yeast that were existing in your area. So yeah, exactly. Those vary a lot as well. Exactly. The variations, you know, it, you know, we're talking about yeast, you know, with Del Maguey, it's all open air fermentation. And what that means is that the fermentation tanks, they're, you know, they're putting the kind of crushed cooked agave and fibers and about 10% local water into those fermentation tanks. And whatever is in the air, whatever those yeasts and microbes are in that particular place are going to affect the flavor of the mezcal. So if there's a tree flowering nearby or if there's fruit growing or if a neighboring village is roasting chilies, all of these things are going to affect the flavor as well as that local water. And, you know, the tradition that this particular paranquero or the person that's making the mezcal, whatever his family's tradition is. The Chichicapas came out in the 90s. Yeah. And then how long was that kind of your only expression before you started, like, branching out and finding new palinques to bring to market? Just a year. The next ones came out the following year. Um, we had kind of a core four expressions for a long time, uh, and we're going to taste two of them tonight. And they're all, those are both, they're all espadine to begin with. Uh, espadine... Uh, is a type of agave. It's the most commonly used agave for mezcal. If you've if you've had mezcal, you've probably had espadine. And if you've had tequila, for that matter, the ancestral mother of the blue Weber agave, which is what all tequila is made from, is the espadine plant. That varietal is exactly. the ancestral mother. Yeah, and um, espadine is interesting. It's, it's important because, like, it's used so commonly because, number one, it's delicious, right? It's very good. And it's more efficient than some of the wild-growing agaves. Espadine typically takes between 7 and 11 years to reach maturity. Maturity just means that the plant has enough sugars in it at that point to ferment and distill. Um, so, you know, if you compare that to grapes for wine or grain for whiskey, where you get a yield every year, 7 to 11 years is still a really long time, but it's actually pretty efficient in the world of agave. When you have certain varietals like the Tepestate, which might take 25 years, or the Tobala might take 15 to 25 exactly. to get to full. And those are tiny, tiny little agaves. Espadine, by comparison, is larger and matures more quickly. Exactly. So it's a more sustainable agave as well because it is one of the few varietals of wild agaves that you can kind of successfully cultivate. You can plant starts and they tend to do pretty well. Is that right? Yeah, that's totally right. Um, if you drive through Oaxaca, which is, you know, there's uh, now 13 states in, in Mexico that can produce mezcal. Oaxaca, which you've probably all heard of since you're here, uh, is sort of the core. That's where most mezcal is being is coming from. Um, but if you drive through Oaxaca and you see a field, a beautiful field of agave in like nice straight rows, that's typically going to be espadine. And then, there, then we'll get into some wild growing stuff tonight too, which is really fun because wild growing is exactly what it sounds like. Um, these families are harvesting the wild growing agave from wherever it's growing. It'll grow off, you know, out of the sides of rock faces or under oak trees, and they kind of have to watch it and wait for it to mature because they're often, like you said, they're much older, um, and they're not cultivating them. So they're rare, and they're wild, and they're really beautiful. And then therein lies the rub because if you want these wonderful mezcals to be sustainable, replant them in the wild because the, the Mexican lands are shared. You have to do, I guess, the equivalent of community service to be able to harvest from the public shared land. But then, so they're planting wild starts, but a lot of these starts, maybe one out of four, maybe one out of 10, might actually survive to full maturity. So it's kind of touch and go, which is why Espadine is a wonderful varietal because it tends to be more, um, 
more easily grown and, and it's more sustainable than some of these the silvestres, the wild agaves. Exactly. Yeah, you said two things I kind of want to touch on. Um, but yes, you're right. The, the agave, that, especially the, the wild ones that we're going to try tonight, it's not that these patanqueros own this. It's communal land, and they basically have to be in good standing in their communities to even, even have access to that land and to that agave. Um, so they, they're not only working to make this mezcal, they're also having to work in other aspects. You know, they might have two years where they're a police officer in their town or whatever kind of community service they have to do to even have access. So it's double the work. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the notion of sustainability. Uh, that's actually something that's near and dear to our hearts at Del Maguey. Uh, Del Maguey is the top mezcal brand in the world. Um, and like I said, we kind of paid, Ron and this company paved the way. So we have to set a good example. Um, mezcal has grown, the popularity has grown exponentially in recent years. And we've seen with tequila, tequila you know, got very popular very quickly and there was a shortage of agave. It got really bad and we're kind of in it again, honestly. And what that leads to is you know, them harvesting agave that's not mature yet, um, over harvesting. It puts families in a bad position. Um, for example, if we were to, as Del Maguey, if we went to one of our one of the 12 to 13 families that we work with, if we said, we want all of your tobola, like just give us all of it, make all of it, we have now stripped that family of their resources and they cannot make any money for years to come. So on a financial level, that's really important to us. Um, we talk about sort of cultural sustainability. Um, I mentioned that we really try to highlight and preserve the culture of each of these families and villages. and. Um, we have a lot of sustainability initiatives that we're working on. A lot of them are really new and really exciting. Um, but I say that because with Del Maguey, I just as as people who are drinking it, I want to tell you it's something that you can feel good about drinking. You're not you're not taking advantage of anybody. It's the ethical and you know appropriate treatment of the families and the land is really really important to us and a high priority, the priority. And in general, if you're a daily mezcal drinker, as I hope you might be, drink Esperin. Stick with something that's a little more sustainable just by its genus, its species is just more easily sustained. Um, save the tobolas and some of the other varietals for special occasions, perhaps. Just a suggestion. So, um, so tell us what's in our little yeah. copitas. And for the folks at home who can't see what we're doing, we have these little clay cups in our hands. Copitas, and this is kind of a ritual that you guys created as a company. Yeah, yeah Ron, uh, so when you're in Oaxaca, if you're at a palenque or a site of distillation and you're drinking with one of the families, um, what they'll be drinking out of is something called a jicara, and it's a halved gourd. Um, it's like a dried halved gourd. They're typically larger than this. Uh, but the what's great about the jicaras and what we try, what Ron tried to sort of emulate with this shape of a cup is that Mezcal is typically distilled at 45 to 55% alcohol by volume, which is pretty high because if you take your typical vodka, say, that's 40%. So a lot of these are 45 and up. So 90 proof, 100 yeah. proof, not unusual. It's high alcohol. But also not for beginners. Right. And so, you know, we, we talk about the nuance. We have, like I said, we have 20 expressions. And the reason being is because they all, they smell so different and they taste so different. But if you're smelling a... 50% alcohol spirit out of something with really narrow edges. If you try to smell whatever's under under there, you're just going to get kicked in the face with alcohol fumes, right? So um, what's great about the wider mouth on these is you can kind of smell. It'll dissipate a little bit. And a little note about tasting, if you've never done a tasting before, uh, keep your mouth open a little bit when you're smelling. Again, just because these are high alcohol. The Vita's pretty approachable. This one isn't so high. This is only 42%. Um, 
But so keep your mouth open a little bit when you're smelling. And we always say two taste. The first taste, you're going to kind of coat your mouth and it's going to, you're kind of saying like taste buds, this is what we're doing. And then the second taste is where you're going to get more of the nuance, more of the kind of minor characteristics that are happening. So Vita. Um, and share some, ta uh, some tasting notes here. So smell this mezcal. And what are you reminded of? What is it? What do you smell? What do you think of as you smell this? Can we do a CG? Vita. Can we do yes, a CG? Okay. So give so. us the rest of the ritual. <laughs> I cut you off halfway no, it's through okay. the ritual. So um, the indigenous people in Oaxaca are called Zapotec or Zapoteca. Uh, they speak a different language than Espanol. It's an entirely different language. So we like to use a Zapotec toast when we drink. And because, you know, mezcal is, they've been making mezcal for well over 500 years. It's an ancient spirit. It's something that people drink when they're gathered together, um, which is what we all are here right now, right? So the Zapotec toast is Stigi Bayou. Uh, Stigi Bayou. Stigi Bayou means to your health to your family's health and to the health of Mother Earth. So let's take a small sip. It's a big toast. It, it covers is. a lot of ground with one word. <laughs> it does. CG Bayou, everyone. Thanks for being here. CG Bayou. So I'll tell you a little bit about Vita as you kind of get into, I won't, I won't give you any tasting notes or anything. Oh, and I just saw somebody doing exactly what you're meant to do. So with your copita, you can, you're definitely welcome to drink out of the glass if you prefer. Um, but I would recommend pouring each of these expressions as they come to you over into your copita, okay? Um, so Vita is, can anybody guess what varietal, what kind of agave it is? Espadine. It is Espadine. <laughs> um, so Vita is 100% Espadine. It's from the village of San Luis del Rio in Oaxaca. San Luis del Rio is at the bottom of a valley. Uh, it's, it's one of the most beautiful villages I've ever been to in Oaxaca. It's on the Red Ant River. Um, our pattern cutter here, his name is Pasiano, and his son Marcus helps him with, the, with this. Um, I've heard a lot of ideas about what people think Vita is. Because, has anybody here ever, has anybody not had Vita before? <laughs> Shut up, Bart. <laughs> That's the Bart GM here. Bart and Swift. I think <laughs> they've both had a little Vita. <laughs> so uh, if, I feel like if people know Del Maguey, they know Vita, right? That, the, the green bottle, I mean, they're all green. But Vita is the one people know. It is, we consider this our entry level. Uh, why, why is that? What is Vita? So we have an expression called San Luis del Rio, named for the village. Vita is the exact same production notes as the San Luis del Rio, but with a different cut of what is coming off of the still. Um, has anybody ever heard of the terms heads, hearts, and tails in reference to distillation? Yeah? Does anybody feel confident enough to explain? Does anybody want to explain what that is or what they think it is? Okay, I'll do it. Um, I'll do it. <laughs> I can do it. Do okay. It. Go for it. So when you start turning on your still, the first part that starts coming off your still, those are the heads. They tend to be the most volatile compounds coming out, and they're essentially poisonous. It's things that smell like acetone. And the folks who would have been making mezcal 500 years ago, of course, they're probably not scientists. So what they're doing is they, they've got this agave wine, that they're distilling, and the first things that come off, dripping off the still, kind of tastes like something very poisonous, paint thinner. And it doesn't take a genius to be like, I don't think I want to drink that. But then gradually, after five or 10 minutes off of this little still, that would change. It wouldn't taste like acetone and paint thinner anymore. It'd start to taste maybe like nuts or like green apples or something recognizable as being possibly digestible maybe not poison and that would be where you start your heart cut and you let that run depending on how the big the still is for maybe half an hour maybe an hour until you know if it's a large still it'll be more and obviously but 
then when it starts to taste kind of brackish or burnt or metallic, that's when you make your tails cut. So the heart cut would be what you keep, the head cut and the tail cut you would set aside. You can either distill that again or throw it away, or you could use the tails also as kind of a flavoring agent as you bring the hearts down to your desired proof. Bam, I'm dropping the mic. Nailed See it. you guys later. Bow. Yeah, so, um, I mean, Bow. like, <laughs> Peter nailed it. So, I mean, like, what? so what is distillation, right? It's separating alcohol from water and the other materials in our, in our ferment, right? So the way we kind of look at tails, like, yeah, yes, the flavors are different. And then it's also that water in that still is eventually going to hit its boiling point. The reason, you know, alcohol separates first because it'll hit its boiling point earlier as a lower at point of boil. 172. That's right. But the water will eventually start to boil and it'll at come through. Pedro nailing this. Um, so what Vita is, is that we, they've added some of those tails back in there, which is just a watery distillate to bring the proof down from 47% to 42%. So what that does is that Vita's really delicious on its own. It's still a great mezcal, but it it's a lower proof. It elongates the batch so we can get more mezcal out of the same amount of agave, making it more affordable for us and for you all. And um, what's the family that's making this in San Luis de, de Rio? Uh, his, uh, the Padanquero, the original Padanquero, is Paciano and uh, his son Marcos. And they, Marcos just got his own palenque across the river. Um, it's, it's interesting, if you, when, if you ever get to meet Paciano, this is such hard work. You know, this is all done by hand. And these men, I say men because it's still sort of a patriarchal um, industry for the most part. That's not entirely true, but for the most part. But Passiano, you're here to change that. I'm not. I'm not. I, I will. I will tell. I'm going to tell you all a story when we get to this particular bottle. Um, but Passiano, if you ever meet him, he's blind in one eye. He has a clouded eye, and it's he got it from a an Espadine spine poking him in the eye. And like it's just it, it's this, you, when you meet him, it's just you can see the work and the wear that this takes of a, a lifetime of producing this. Um, so that's just. I always, you know. <laughs> and then so, what, what's the his little palenque? Like, how big is his still, ooh. and and how much is he putting out per year? That's a great question. Um, I don't have an exact number. Uh, so people ask us a lot, like, how do you produce this much Vita and stay and keep the integrity and keep you know the small production that you talk about with your brand, right? So instead of upping the size of the fermentation tanks or the stills or anything, they've basically recreated the original palenque over and over and over again. So we everything- We call that horizontal expansion. Yeah, horizontal, yeah, I think it's, yeah, horizontal expansion. So when you go now, I'm, they, they just added more too. I don't, I don't have an exact number on that for you. I can show you all pictures if you would like to see them. Um, but it's, you know, they wanted to make sure that it wasn't being done on a larger scale as far as the actual sizes of the pieces being used, but that's just that we could do more of it. Do you have a sense of like, okay, this is the, the most, common mezcal that you guys put out there but how much more of this do you sell than the rest of the lines it's exponential um it's, it's definitely like, exponential like six uh, times more than everything else definitely more vita than everything else combined could you say that yeah i think that's okay. probably correct okay. i would think so that's probably correct um yeah it's uh del Maguey is the number one exported mezcal out of mexico followed closely behind i think uh, is it is silencio silencio is three <laughs> Number two, and then Casamigos is three. Is that right? Yeah. And we have Solicitor in the house, too. It's because we all love each other, mm -hmm. right? Support the category. Support the people. That's right. That's right. So 
this is it. This is the Vita is kind of the flagship of Mezcal's. Now, if I don't know anything about Mezcal at all, I'm kind of intrigued here because this smells a little smoky to me. Do you guys get that smokiness? Why is it, does it smell like smoke? Why does it? Oh, geez. All right. I'm well, catching we can talk, up. We can talk about that on the second one, the too. The second one smoky, too? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would have never guessed. Has, has everybody, is everybody ready to move to the second one? We feel good about it? Do you have any questions about Vita? Did you guys, was it, did you find it very smoky? Was the first one really roasty to anybody? Sort of? Yeah, I find it kind of like, sort of, not too much. Is that what this one is? Yeah, it's, um, I, this was the first mezcal I ever had. I had it in 2010 when it came out, the Vita. Uh, and I was like, this is crazy. What is this? Like, I thought it was so smoky. But I think now as a culture, now as people are drinking more mezcal, I think our palates are developing altogether. And... To me, this one isn't that smoky anymore. Yeah, Vita is extremely accessible, actually. Accessible, yeah. And it's accessible also because of the bottle price. This is kind of like your entry-level mark, right? Yeah. How much is this going to run me at my local liquor store? You can, and here in L.A., you can actually get Vita at Trader Joe's now. Um, what? It's about $33, yeah. Wow. I know. That's a crazy deal. <laughs> um, should we, should so we move? what is the second mark that we just okay. got passed around? So does everybody have their second one? Yeah? All right, cool. So... This is Chichi Kappa. Uh, we've mentioned Chichi Kappa before. This again, this is Delmage's flagship mezcal. This is the one that changed everything. Um, to me, because I look at Delmage as paving the way and Ron Cooper sort of introducing this to people, and because this was Delmage's first, to me, this is gold standard artisanal mezcal. This is the standard bearer. This is the one that, this was the first one that a lot of people ever tried. And so, in my opinion, I think when people think of a good mezcal, this is the flavor profile that they think of first. Um, do you? Does anybody find this one super smoky and well, roasty? Well, this is kind of, I don't know, this specific mezcal is kind of, for us here at Las Perlas, it holds a very, very special place. For one thing, the name of the bar, a little bit was based off of that photo from the original label, which is Faustino, and he's like, he's got his little reed, and the mezcal's coming out, and there's little bubbles. And those are las perlas, which is where we get our name. It's how the mezcaleros are able to detect at what ABV the distillate is. They know from experience that when the bubbles are a certain size and they last for a certain amount of time, that the alcohol level is correct in what's coming off the still. So they count las perlas to know when the mezcal is ready. But also, one of our opening bartenders, Noel Carlon, who's no longer with us, but whose altar is right behind us, right there on the wall. This is his favorite mezcal. So we, we always toast Noel here with the chichicapas. So Noel, I know you're here somewhere. You're here everywhere. This one's for you, buddy. Stitchy Bayou. Let's talk so, about some flavors. Yeah, Can we talk sure. about flavors? Um, I'll tell you a couple of things about this. It, so again, does anybody, what, what agave do we think we're tasting here? Esparin, that's right. Um, just, just so you know what Chichicapa is, it's kind of a funny name, right? That's the name of a village. Uh, a kind of a shortcut with Del Maguey is if you see the name on a bottle that doesn't sound like a plant, it is the village. And if it's the name of a village, it is going to be Esparin because we're trying to highlight the flavor of that particular village and we use Esparin as sort of the blank palette, right? Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, and it's also a sustainable way for these single mel uh, single village mess house to come to market. Exactly. You could go and ask these people to, like, please just go harvest whatever you can find. Mm -hmm. But that wouldn't be responsible. And it would eventually exhaust their ability to make mezcal for you. So you would be robbing them of their long-term yeah. 
uh, business because now they have a business in their village where maybe they didn't have one before. And I would like to think that these mescaleros and these small palenques are still making it for their neighbors mm -hmm. and for their villages as well because you don't want to take away mezcal from the people who traditionally it's been like the, the spiritual medicina for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can't just go down there and just culturally appropriate it and be like, oh, we got money. We're just going to buy all your magic juice from you guys. Like, I mean, that's you could, totally some uncool. people are, but we're not going to, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, so it's, um, I think which, which I wanted to kind of say something that you were just talking about uh, and how this even happened. You know, you're saying you hope they're still making it for their neighbors and for their families. And that's kind of an important distinction is that these, these families that we're working with Mezcal, it, you could kind of look at it the way that Americans look at, like, moonshine. For a long time, they just looked at it as, like, this is what the farmers drink, right? Because people are just making it at home. It's just farmers. They're, like, they're just making it at home, and they've been doing it for generations. And this is how Ron found it. He started traveling to Oaxaca, and he would become friends with these families, and he just started traveling from village to village and tasting whatever, you know, these panaqueros are making and just fell in love with it. He's like, these are all so vastly different. Um, but Faustino here, this was the first one. This is the one that Ron tried, and he said, and Ron's, Ron's an artist. He was a very successful artist. He was a big part of the light and space movement here in the California in the 70s. He was, art, like, mezcal was never the plan. Uh, the plan was, this, can, I, can I tell a, small, a short story? Yeah, <laughs> okay. do it. That's what so, we're here for. Um, we love the short stories. I don't always stories. tell this story, but I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, Ron refers to mezcal as liquid art. Uh, that's the way we kind of approach it. Art is tied up into all of this. And Ron had this idea when he was down there uh, early on. He wanted to, he was really into making vessels at the time, like um, kind of like vases and pitchers, all these kind of interesting vessels. And he had this idea. He said, I want to do this exhibition where I have 40 vessels that I've made and I'm going to fill each one with a different mezcal that I love from a different village. So that's how it started. He started traveling around. He's like, where are the best ones? And he started collecting his favorites. And when he got somewhere in the 20s, he looked at it and he said, the vessels are not the art, the mezcal is. This is the art, this is what I wanna focus on. And so when he had Faustino's, when he had this chichicapa, he was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is what I want. I'm gonna build you a palenque, I wanna, I'm gonna put it in order, I don't know how much I need, but this is the one that launched it all, because it was that delicious. So what are you guys getting? Is you stick your nose in this copita, you breathe in gently through your mouth, and what are you reminded of? Vanilla? Interesting. All yeah. right. All right. What else? Grapefruit. Okay. Some citrus. I find the finish on this one to be very long and soft, much longer than the Vita. Is it kind of sticking with you all a little bit more? We also, is anybody getting any dried mint on this? Like kind of like a minty sort of. I get a little bit of spearmint on there. Yeah, right. And a little chocolatiness. I get like a milk yeah. chocolate, a little spearmint and milk chocolate on the finish. I've had people tell Damn me that good. this is just mint chocolate to them. This is just, mint you know, chocolate. yeah. Okay, so what's this third bark that Stephanie just brought around for everyone? Yeah, so these, normally I like to display the labels. I brought these, I, I was low, and I brought these back from Oaxaca with me, so that's why they look like they're, they're in suspicious-looking plastic bottles, but it means it's authentic, right? Right, well, no, I always <laughs> like to say, when, especially when it comes to mezcal, if you someone hands you a water bottle that's got, like, Sharpie on it, that is going to be the most interesting mezcal you're going to have all day. Definitely <laughs> drink it, unless it turns out to be gasoline, because sometimes that's all you got to put your gas in, so you make do with what you have. But um, no, that's where the interesting mezcal always comes in these, like, sample bottles. Exactly. Sometimes it's a water bottle. Yeah. Like when you go to the, the farmer's market up in Chacolula, 
That's how the farmers are selling their mezcal at the farmer's market. They're selling it in like a Pepsi bottle that they're recycling or a water bottle that they're recycling. Yeah. I was so, uh, last time we went to go visit Faustino, we were leaving. We'd been drinking all day. And, you know, he gave us two water bottles and we, li we I thought it was water. I should have known better. I was like so dehydrated. I was like, oh, thank God. And like mm -hmm. mezcal, delicious mezcal, but yes. quite a shock. Yeah, um, it, was, it was eight <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> what a thirsty way to start the day. Wow. That's not satiating, but it's delightful. <laughs> So, um, so what is this third mark here? This what? third one, this is called Santo Domingo Abradas. Uh, do we think that's a plant or a place? place? Place, that's right. All right, so what does that mean it is? What kind of agave are we looking at? Espadin. great. Okay, so uh, Santo Domingo Abradas. Uh, this one is, I, I encourage you to take a long, a, like a long time with this one. As I, Go ahead and start smelling as I'm talking, because this one to me is so distinctive and I've, I, the, the first time I had this one, I was really blown away, and I've never had another mezcal like this one. Um, so Santo Domingo Rodas is really interesting because it's in a really mountainous region of Oaxaca. This village is in what they call a cloud forest, essentially, and what that means is that there's fog and mist enveloping this palenque at all times. Uh, why that's important is because, because of where they're located, they have really amazing local mountain water. So that water is touching this mezcal at every single step of the process. Um, also, the soil there is really, is a lot, you'll, you'll be able to taste it, it's a lot rockier. This panicato, his name is Ethridian. Uh Typically, you know, we've been talking about these panicatos and their sons helping them, right? Uh, Esperidian, it's, he has a wife and his daughters and they're the ones doing all of this work. Uh, one of his daughters was the first person in their village to go to college. Uh, not only that, she became a lawyer not only that, she became a native rights lawyer. So, um, but when she, when we negotiated with Pernod Ricard to kind of figure out how we were going to partner with them, she was the one that advocated and negotiated to make sure that all the cultural, um, kind of the cultural, the cultural importance that goes into all of this was protected. Uh, so we're, she wanted to look out for the rights of the families exactly, who were actually making it. Exactly, and you know, being indigenous and being from one of the families that actually produces our mezcal, I always find that you know really important. And being a woman too. Hell um, yeah! Yeah, it's, it's great to have a sister who's a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you have any? Do you have any questions about the scent? Should I say anything? Uh, yeah, else about this I want to know what does it smell like and what does it taste like. Does anything jump out to you all? This one's weird. It's funky, right? It's way different. What are you guys Chichicapa. getting on this one? Cheese and mustard. I was going to say, like, it's got a little bit of a, a, a gluey smell to it. Gloomy. That's so interesting you say that. I, there's some note in here that I'm, I always say, it tastes like cold, like if cold had a, but like gloomy is a good way of putting it. I said it. gloomy, but gloomy is oh, more interesting. I, I said gloomy. Gloomy. This, this, yeah. This mess tells, smells creepy. <laughs> no, I... It does not smell creepy. Do you, um, is, any, is there anything like else pace, that really like jumps ac out? Acetone? What, do you, what were you say? A cold stream. Wet so that's mine. water to me, which is minerality. Like when we were talking Burn. earlier about minerality, yeah. Like rain, wet earth, the smell of a river when you're standing next to a river. Those are mineral aspects. Yeah. That's great. That's to great. me, those are the notes that, that jump out the most. Talking about minerality. Like this to me is like licking a wet rock almost, you know? Yeah. Absinthe? Yeah, like an anna. Yeah, I agree with you. There's some, there's definitely, this one to me, like, I, I always tell people if they're not sure what kind of mezcal they're going to like, but they're like, I like gin. I'm like, 
Santo Domingo Alvarados. There's a lot of herbal and like kind of botanical notes in this one for sure. Is there anything else that jumps out to you all? Cedar. Yeah. You, yeah there's wood on this, and I feel like and like and there's like a a, a foresty quality, right? It's very distinctive. I agree. I think this one's really now, In comparison to how big the Palenques are, like, have you been to both of these Palenques, both mm -hmm. the Chichicapas and then the, the San Domingo? Yeah. So how, how are they different in size and methods? Are they doing yeah. anything that's drastically different from town to town? Yeah, sure. So, um, so well, I, I didn't get to tell you, like, kind of the where the what Chichicapa looks like. You know, I've been talking about Santo Domingo Alvarado being really mountainous. Chichicapa is really flat. It's kind of a, has a little bit of a tropical climate, but almost desert. It's very dry. Uh, and I feel like you, it's kind of harsh. Like you can kind of get that with the Chichicapa. Um, they're both, does anybody have a guess what kind of stills we're typically using with mezcal production? Because there's two basic kinds, right? There's column and pot stills in, in distillation. Does anybody have a guess what kind we're using for mezcal traditionally? Pot, yeah, that's right. Pot stew, um, pot stew, yeah. Yeah, uh, so pots, this, this, the pot stills at our palenques, they really vary in materials. The thing you were going to see most often is copper. Um, so these two, they both use copper pot stills at these palenques. Uh, they each have one roasting pit. These are these are not dissimilar in size. Um, Santo Domingo Abrados, they just added two more fermentation tanks, so they're up to six. Now, uh, Falsino, I think for for doing Chichicapa, he only has five fermentation tanks, so he's so it's still a very small operation. Yeah, it's still very small. Do you have any sense of like how long does it take from harvest through fermentation to bottling, like okay. through the distillation? How long does that take? Three yeah. weeks, a month? Let's like, go back I'm not even, even further. How many years it takes? Okay, not counting that. To, not counting the years it takes for the the agaves to get to maturity, but like say we've got. Our, our conical earthen oven filled with agaves and we're about to light it up and roast these agaves and we've harvested now. Mm -hmm. How long from that starting point at the Palenque until we've got mezcal coming off the still? So it really varies. That's a great question. This is something that, you know, we talk about hand of the maker, like each patanquero is going to do things a little bit differently. Um, I have a range. I'll give you a range. Uh, typically roast takes between three to seven days. Some palanqueros will actually going to taste one in a few minutes. Will actually leave their agave in the ground past the time that the fire is out because the microbes in the soil will actually even start to change the agave. Um, then they have kind to, of a, a, a primary fermentation of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, the tobala, which we're going to try, actually, like after it's been cooked for three three to seven days, is typically going to be. Does everybody know what fermentation is when we're talking about that, right? It's, it's where it's alcohol, right? It's, it's the conversion of like the starches and sugars into alcohol and uh, carbon dioxide, right? Or carbonation, rather. Um, so typically the ferment will take between uh, seven days and a month for some of them. And then the distillation, after we have that, you know, we basically have agave kind of beer at that point, like alcoholic agave. That's what's going to go into the still. Uh, the still, that takes that's pretty quick depending, uh, you know, temperature always matters with these things, right? Like in the warmer in the warmer parts of the year or the warmer areas of Oaxaca, it's always going to be a little bit faster. Um, but everything, I forgot to say earlier, this everything's twice distilled. I talked about 45 to 55% ABV, but everything, unless it's a special edition, is going to go through the still twice. Just yeah. to get it up to that proof point. Yeah, exactly. You take agave wine, it might be 9 to 10% alcohol. You distill it the first time, it might jump up to 20 
to 35% alcohol, but you need to do it one more time to get it up to that 45% alcohol, 100 or 50% alcohol. Exactly, yeah. Boom. Kind of rounds out those kind of funky flavors too. So what do you guys think of the Santo Domingo here? What else are you getting off of this one? Yeah, tap some over your tongue. Sometimes the nose will read you, lead you in one direction and the tongue will tell you something else. So allow yourself to be surprised. You know, don't go so set in your mind as to what it has to be. Allow that experience to change. I found this one to be really polarizing too. I feel like often this is one that people are like, they love it and they're on board or they're like, that one is not for me. That's not my thing. Is there? So I always kind of like to ask, is there anybody that hates this expression? No one? That's no amazing. Haters. I love that. Yeah, awesome. Does it could like be the Chichi Kappas that took away their hate and <laughs> we're just starting <laughs> to feel better one. and better and better. Good. That's what we're Does everyone for. have the fourth mark? Yes? So step, what is this one? Oh, the queen of the agaves. Tobala. Um, all right, so we're branching out. We've tasted a lot of espadine so far, and now we're we're stepping into the wild agave category. Um, Tobala, Pet, do you do you want to talk about Tobala at all? I feel like I've been talking a lot. No, that's your job. I know. No, okay, I I'll talk about no. Tobala. So the Tobala, as opposed to the espadine, which means like like swords, it's big, huge, spiky fronds coming up. The Tobala is this beautiful, smaller than a volleyball fully matured agave that looks almost like a rosetta. It's got this beautiful like fractal style spiral of little tiny leafy fronds with spikes on the edges. It's tiny and beautiful and it's just something magical when you see a tobala. It's also unique because it only grows in the shade of the Mexican oak. Oh, yeah. And so it, it it tends to grow in weird positions like on the side of a cliff, on the side of like a, a root that's coming out from this oak tree. It's like, it's a very, very interesting uh, agave. Yeah. It's kind of it's wondrous. Yeah. It is. It's, uh, it's, it's rare and it's wild and it's special. Um, this one, you know, takes, you know, 12 to 20 years-ish to reach maturity. It's much older than the espadine. Um, and, you know, uh, Pedro is saying that it grows in the shade of oak trees. I, have you heard this? I heard recently that there's this theory that they may believe there's some sort of symbiotic relationship between the Tobala and the oak tree, but they're not sure exactly what it is yet. Well, I've also um, heard that the Tobala has an enzyme in its roots that actually is strong enough that it dissolves stone because oh it grows God. on such rocky soil. You have to stand these agaves. It's not like there's some farmer going out there and like that old agave that I saw up there. I need to go water it. Nobody said that ever. OK, that is. These are all these amazing agaves that have survived on their own without anyone taking care of them, other than the bats and the bugs and what other critters are out there. We don't know what happens in the night, right? But um, that's the magic of it, is that this plant has survived on its own without anyone watering it or anything for 15 years. And then some cowboy came by and harvested it, and we're getting the flavor of all that time, yes. of all that essence, yes. of all that life. Yes. You know? I love that. Yeah, I, I read I read recently somebody said, you know, mezcal tastes like time. And I think it's I, it's too it's twofold. Right. Or it's probably several. But I always read it two ways. But you're saying you're tasting the life of that plant, especially when they're up to 20 years old and beyond. But you're also tasting 500 years of tradition and culture and uh, skill. Um, but so Tobala, this particular one, this is made in Santa Maria Alvarados. 
So it sounds really familiar, right? Sounds like Santo Domingo Obreras. Uh, this is the same mountain as Santo Domingo Obreras, but the other side. Um, so, and this side, so even though Santo Domingo is in a cloud forest, it gets more sun than this side. So this is a very shady side of the mountain. Um, our padanquero here, Rogelio, he has one still. He has two fermentation tanks. He makes four of our expressions. He makes tobala, he makes our wild tepestate, he makes our espadina special, and he makes our wild hobbly. So he is prolific with his yeah. very small point. And game. magical, because I've and had magical. that hobbly. That is like, I think that's one of Bart's favorite marks. Where's Bart? He's already passed out somewhere on the floor. But um, so this one is. So this, uh, the tobala. The tobala. Rahelio has this really interesting thing that he does with all of his mezcals, where. He le he's, he's the one that leaves them in the ground much longer uh, than any of our other padanqueros. And not only that, once he pulls them out of the roast and lets them cool, uh, he leaves them to sit for a long time as well. So if you go to his palenque and you look at a pile of roasted cold tobola, he lets them actually start to grow. There's a kind of a white fungus that starts to grow on them. Um, and... We've never had it tested. We don't know exactly what it is, but it is part of I know of what the, it is. Oh, do you know what it is? Yeah, it's the funk. The funk. Yeah, it's the funk. That's it the is, funk. There is like, there's, it, it creates this creamy flavor that's inherent, I feel, in all of it. This is my theory. I think that's, uh, there's like a creaminess in all of his mezcals. There's almost like a Well, there's certain kinds of fermentations that are like uh, more like lactic or yeah. uh, I'm, I'm losing the word now, but... It's a different kind of fermentation not that doesn't involve so much water or active yeast. It's more of a passive yeast fermentation. Yeah. So like I, an anaerobic part of it that creates more like lactic acids, which are creaminess. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and smell and taste this one. So what are you guys getting from this Tobala de Del Maguey? Share your experience. No wrong answers. What is it? What did you say? Funky flowers. I like that. All right. Cinnamon? Cinnamon, absolutely. What else? Sway, what are you getting? Petrichor, so wet earth. Nice. Yeah, I find this one's really foresty. Well, this one has a slightly brininess quality to it, too. I'm almost getting like um, like pickled peppers. Ooh, yeah. And chocolatey, too. Chocolatey on the finish. I like it. Mole? Yeah, a little mole action happening here. It's got a lot going on. That's cool. On. I find right that on. even though we're saying all these notes, I find tobala to be really integrated, though. You know, some of them in your on your palate, they're kind of all, you know, you taste things in waves. To me, the tobala is just so soft and integrated, even though we have all these different flavors. Do you all find that? To, I find this to be very round. Yeah. Uh, I love this one. This one, sexy. It makes me want to relax, you know, like... Not many things make me want to do that, all right? Um, this on, on most days, if you ask Ron Cooper what his favorite is, it's going to be this one. Most days. You know, so everybody's got their moves. What's the ABV and what is the bottle price? Um, so we've kind of jumped up a tier now. Not necessarily an ABV, but we have jumped. Because the wild agaves are more rare, because they are older, they are pricier. Um, this one is probably going to retail. I mean, I know... I get a retail, I would say 120. Um, so we've jumped up quite a bit here. Uh, the ABV on this one is 45%. So we've actually come down a little bit in the alcohol by volume. Right. 
So, um, so what is this fifth mark, Jen? This fifth mark. This is another wild agave. This and is, this is another plastic bottle another with plastic a bottle. piece of tape and some Sharpie it writing is. on it. Um, so this is this is called Wild Papalome. Um, Papalome comes, it's based on a Zapotec word that translates uh, to butterfly. Uh, so when I first read that, I was like, oh, this is going to be so pretty. And this is a big, this is a big boy. This is a big mezcal. Um, this well, is from a toy. Butterflies are also pollinators. Th that's true. So you could think of it as like, it's like a honeybee. It's got a little sting. I boom, boom. I like that. I mean, not, not that butterflies have stingers. <laughs> I know. They're going to be running from butterflies now. No, no. <laughs> They're totally um, harmless. So um, this mezcal is from a totally different region from the other ones that we've been trying. This is from a region called the Mixteca Alta region. Uh, the other ones that we've tried have been like Sierra Norte. They, um, it's kind of south of the city center. This is more north. Uh, this, so this one's interesting because everything we've tried so far, they've all been copper pot stills. So we were talking about stills before. This is a really cool still. Uh, so not only is this a wild agave, uh, this one takes 13 to 17 years. So it's again, a little bit older, not quite as old as the Tobola. Uh, but this, this still, I'm Southern, so this is always hard for me to say. It's a steel still, galvanized steel, uh, with a with a clay condensing coil and bamboo tubing. So we have three different materials. What's that? Bamboo tubing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we have three different materials that are present here, and you know, helping with this flavor. Uh, clay is really interesting because if you've been drinking out of your copita. Clay's cool because it kind of it gives a little bit of a flavor, right? It gives like a little bit of cool minerality, even if you're like if your mouth is touching. But if it's actually in the distillation process, it does the same thing. Um, let's go ahead and smell this one. Let's just get into it. I I feel like if I start saying notes to you, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, that's yes. like obviously so you what I'm tell smelling. us. Stick yeah. your nose over that little copita, breathe in gently through your mouth. What are you reminded of? Think of food words. Think of places. Think of plants. Cheese. Cheesy garlic, garlic bread. bread. Wow. That's delicious. I keep messing up and smelling my microphone. <laughs> you can smell your microphone, but it's not going to give you flavor notes. It receives audio. It doesn't give you anything to say. Butterscotch? Butterscotch? Okay. Yeah. There's a rubbery quality, too. There's a phenolic one on this one. A little bit of this earthiness and rubberiness, which is pleasant. Yeah. But it's more of a burnt, burnt flavor in here a little bit. Green pepper? It's, yeah, kind of a savory green pepper. Yeah, note, maybe right? roasted green pepper. Yeah. Is anybody getting like olive or kind of like a funky salinity on olive, this? Olive brine again? Yeah. So that can come from that anaerobic fermentation. Mm -hmm. When you're not adding yeast and you're not adding sugar to kind of push things along, then the initial aerobic phase of the fermentation will end. And then you enter into the anaerobic phase of the fermentation where you get a lot of other, it's more passive, it takes longer, but you get into some really weird flavors that can be kind of rubbery or burnt or yeah. buttery. I, yeah, I get this. I'm getting this like the rubbery kind of, uh, almost like an industrial flavor on this, you know? Not industrial mezcal, but like an industrial flavor. You, Steve, Steve Olson, who uh, is one of the partners at Del Maguey and has, you know, one of the most famous palates in the spirits industry. He describes this as sort of sinking into a dark leather chair. This is, you know, it's kind of really robust. It has almost like a cured meat quality. Do you find this one kind of like, there's like not a ton of fruity, pretty notes on this one, right? It's much bigger. Maybe it's that, that clay condensing coil that you're talking about because if it were copper, you know, 
Copper has sulfates in it. Organic matter has sulfites in it, like compounds like the bond. So what's happening inside that copper interaction is the sulfites are sticking to the sulfates and being removed from the distillates. But that rubbery quality, now that's a sulfate or a sulfite. Those are sulfurous compounds that are making it through the distillation. I'm learning so much from you tonight. I tried. <laughs> um, the question I have for you is, you guys, do you have any of your palinques that use clay pot stills? Because yeah. that's another ancestral method. Thank you for asking that. So, You're um, Pedro's asking about clay pot stills. So, I, you know, I just mentioned, you know, 500 years ago, Zapotec people who were distilling, they didn't have access to oak barrels, and that's why we're not doing any oak aging, right? Uh, they also didn't have copper pot stills. If they were distilling, it was in clay pot stills because that's what they had. Um, Clay pot stills, they look like big flower pots. They're really interesting because they're an expensive way to distill. Actually, one of our palenques still uses clay pot stills in Santa Catarina Minas. If you ever get to try our Minero or our Pachuga or our Iberico, uh, those are all done in clay pot stills. Uh, clay is interesting because it does impart this like minerality and all these like flavor compounds, but it also leaches out your liquid. Because like if you were to like leave your mezcal sitting in our in your clay cut pizza for a little while. You come back an hour later, your mezcal is going to be on the table underneath it, right? And inside that clay. So it's porous. Um, the other danger is that clay breaks, right? There's times where, you know, they'll have a whole, you know, still full of mezcal and it breaks and they've lost it all. Um, when or you go they'll see it start to crack and they'll be like, get the other pot because we're going to do a transfer really exactly. fast. Exactly. That's more likely. I don't think these guys are like, <laughs> Ugh, they're not that done bad this at enough times that they're like, I think it's about to break. <laughs> they're, they're keeping We need eyes. to do something. Yeah. If, if, when we go to Santa Catarina, I mean, there's this like clay, there's a still graveyard where they've basically turned them yeah. into planters. They've, they're all turned they've over. They've got broken pot stills, uh, broken clay pot stills everywhere all around. Yeah. So. But it's interesting because there's, there's different distinctions. Um, your palenque will have a different distinction based on how traditionally you're making your mezcal sort of like on one end of that is your industrial uh, and then on the other end of that is ancestral and that just means that you're doing everything as traditionally as possible and in Santa Catarina Minas it's one of eight palenques that in the world that have that distinction so we're very proud of that so thank you for asking so and now you guys after this is like Ron Cooper's life work an artist from LA he wanted to see where the Pan American Highway led in that crazy surfer's journey he found this wonderful, magical world of Mezcal, the, the indigenous spirit of Oaxaca. Now, the company's been sold. Ron's retiring. Um, it's now part of Pernod Ricard. So what does that mean? And you said, like, the daughter of one of the fam families has actually helped to negotiate the contract. Yeah. But as someone who works for the company, how have you seen things start to change? And, like, yeah, how are we going to protect the people who produce it moving forward when you got this big, huge international conglomerate coming in is now going to take over. Do you have right. a sense of that? Oh, I yeah. know Ron probably we were talks scared. about it a lot. I, yeah, he does. And well, and this is the thing. They're, they didn't, they own 50, Pernod Ricard is 51% of the company. Uh, so Ron Cooper and Steve Olson and Michael Gardner, who are the three partners, they still are running the company. Um, it took many, it took a long time to get this contract underway because a lot of people came up to Ron and were like, we want to buy Del McGay. And Pernod Ricard was the first one that actually complied with everything that Ron, you know, it, this is the thing about Del McGay. We are built on this single village methodology. We are built on these families. We are built on our, you know, 
reputation of remaining ethical and moral and sustainable. So for us and for Pernod Ricard, if we lose that, if we mess with any of that, we're done. We're, we, we cannot exist. Um, and also, on a logistical level, where these palenques are located and the way that they're built, they can't grow. They, 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 you can't, they, they can't scale vertically. They, they can't, if you're going to sustain it again, you have to kind of move horizontally. You have to yeah. make it sustainable within itself to maintain the same flavor profiles. Yeah. Um, we're very fortunate in the fact that Pernod Ricard seems more interested right now in the Vita aspect of things, in the, in the sustainable portion. Um, and, you know, we're, everything's still running as it always has. But what's been great about, I'll, t I'll tell you this about Pernod Ricard, that was awesome. Um, basically, we've been able to kick off sustainability initiatives that we weren't able to before because we didn't have the resources at the time. Um, so there's a few things that we're working on. Like, for example, uh, there's a there's a byproduct in mezcal production, this water that's kind of full of funky compounds called vinasas. And we're working with a company now that's pressing those vinasas and those compounds into bricks to be donated uh, back to rebuilding damage from the earthquakes. Uh, so that's one thing that we're kind of kicked off. And a story about Ron, when you know the deal happened, he said, okay, I'm gonna take a portion of this and divide it amongst the families, a portion of my profit. And Pernod Ricard says, well, how much? And he says, it's none of your business, it's my money. You're giving this to me and I'm gonna divide it the way that I want. And Pernod Ricard is like, but really, how much? And so he finally disclosed it and Pernod Ricard actually matched that price and divided it amongst the families. So they've, they've really, um, I, think they I think they recognize what they bought, I think they recognize who they're partnered with and it's, so far it seems as important to them to well, maintain that as it is to us. Yeah, I think it's really important to honor the people of Oaxaca and this traditional medicinal magical spirit by bringing it to market with due respect and due diligence to the people who make it. Absolutely. All right, dropping the copita, you guys. Let's give it up for Jen Thank Oakley. you, guys. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you Jen, for coming out. My pleasure. And I think we have some more business in the future. Surprises coming down the road. Yes, we do. So please come back to Las Perlas with any new releases that Delma Gay wants to bring out. <laughs> hint, hint. Oh, it's coming. Question mark over my head, glowing in the dark. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember. <laughs>